Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company. They do terrific work. You can find out more and give them a call. The website is johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. We have a terrific show for you today, including guests Bob Levy, He's a constitutional scholar and author, also chairman of the Cato Institute. We'll be talking about judicial activism. And Andrew Joppa, professor and author of Josephus of Oz, will be with us as well. It is September the 21st, and on this day in 1780, during the American Revolution, American General Benedict Arnold met with British Major John Andre to discuss handing over West Point to the British in return for a promise of a large sum of money and a high position in the British Army. The plot was foiled, and Arnold, a former American hero, became synonymous with the word traitor. Arnold was born in a well-respected family in Norwich, Connecticut. On January the 14th, 1741, he apprenticed with an apothecary and was a member of the militia during the French and Indian War. He later became a successful trader and joined the Continental Army when the Revolutionary War broke out in 1775. During the war, Benedict Arnold uh, uh, proved himself a brave and skillful leader, helping Ethan Allen's troops capture Fort Ticonderoga in 1775 and then participating in an unsuccessful British Quebec later that year, which earned him a promotion to Brigadier General. Arnold distinguished himself in campaigns at Lake Champlain, uh, Ridgefield, and Sarasota, Saratoga, I should say, and gained the support of General George Washington. However, Arnold's enemies within the military, and in 77, 1777, five men of lesser rank were promoted over him. Over the course of the next few years, Arnold married for a second time, and he and his new wife lived a lavish lifestyle in Philadelphia, accumulating substantial debt. The debt and the resentment Arnold felt over not being promoted faster were motivating factors in his choice to become a turncoat. In 1780, Arnold was given command of West Point, an American fort on the Hudson River in New York. Of course, it's now the U.S. Military Academy. Arnold contracted, uh, or contacted Sir Henry Clinton, head of the British forces, and proposed handing over West Point and his men. On September the 21st of that year, Arnold met with Major John Andre and made his traitorous pact. However, the conspiracy was uncovered and Andre was captured and executed. Arnold, the former American patriot, fled to the enemy side and went on to British troops in Virginia and Connecticut. He later moved to England, though he never received all of what he had been promised by the British. He died in London in 1801. Story of Benedict Arnold, and certainly is synonymous with traitor. Well, today all the eyes are on the Fed. Uh, they're going to be uh, raising interest rates today. The expected rate is, uh, would become roughly a week after the higher-than-expected inflation report. The Dow Jones Industrial Average got creamed again yesterday with losing over 300 points. The Fed will impose a series of aggressive interest rates hikes in recent months in an attempt to lower prices by slowing the economy and consumer demand. Many economists expect another 0.75 hike today, with some uh, predicted as much as 1%, which uh, the Fed hasn't done for four decades. So we'll watch that. Right now, futures are up slightly, but they're looking a little weak, so we'll see what happens today. 
The Justice Department charged 47 people, including government and nonprofit employees, in what they called the largest uh, government pandemic aid fraud to date. In this case, the defendants are accused of stealing $250 million from the federal program, serving meals to low-income children. Here's how it works. The prosecutor said they created shell companies claiming to offer meals to tens of thousands of children across the state. They then sought reimbursement from the governor and spent the money on cars, jewelry, and properties. The alleged ringleader had uh, pleaded not guilty. Now the DOJ is issuing a warning flare and saying it's coming uh, after other fraudsters. Already the department has brought charges in more than 1,000 other criminal cases involving more than $1.1 billion in federal uh, dollars. Unbelievable. My opinion, <clears throat> they ought to take these uh, so-called uh, IRS agents and uh, turn them on all the fraud that's being com committed, especially during this pandemic. Billions and billions of dollars. Uh, also, well, the money going to Ukraine should do some inspection on that as well. According to a new poll from the James Madison Institute conducted, conducted uh, public opinion strategies, James Madison Institute, by the way, a terrific organization, Florida voters are overwhelmingly concerned with inflation other, of, over other issues. The poll found the top issue of concern was inflation and the cost of consumer goods, 42%, ranking much higher than immigration or gun control at uh, 9 and 8% respectively. 83% of respondents said controlling inflation should be the top regulatory priority of Congress over big tech regulation. Uh, the poll found that if Congress were to move forward with tech company regulation, Congress should uh, prioritize legislation to prevent cyber attacks, increase security measures to uh, better protect children online, and alert customers involved in data breaches. Voters in Florida are very clear. They're concerned about the economy and inflation and believe acting on policies to break up American technology companies is not only unfair, but will increase prices on consumer goods, said Robert Blizzard, a partner at Public Opinion Strategies. Pursuing po uh, policies in Washington like antitrust is a lose-lose situation. Fo focusing on these policies could actually be detrimental for lawmakers seeking re-election. The poll confirmed that Florida voters don't want heavy-handed government regulations and that they increase prices and stifle innovation, said Sal Nuzzo, vice president of policy at the James Madison Institute. As in, and Sal's been on the show several times. As inflation continues to stifle the economy, voters are right to demand their elected officials focus on the kind of free market principles that will lead to lower costs of everyday goods. So it's, it's the economy, stupid, right? Uh, certainly is. Governor Ron DeSantis announced a portion of his tax relief proposal for the upcoming legislative session, which will provide $1.1 billion in tax relief for Florida families through multiple tax holidays if passed by the legislature. Including in the proposal is an expansion of the uh, annual back-to-schools tax holiday and permanent tax in addition to a year-long tax exemption on other household family uh, goods. He says that I'm proud that Florida has a right a record budget surplus, and I'm happy to propose historic tax relief to Florida families, said the governor. Uh, this proposal will allow families to purchase items for their children at a lower cost and help families keep more money in their pockets. I look forward to working with the legislature to bring this uh, proposal forward. And there's a lot of different uh, things in it that will save mainly families uh, some serious money uh, in the coming year, and uh, some some are even proposed as permanent. 
but for example, a permanent tax exemption on items that contain medical medicinal ingredients and medical equipment to close the gap on medical supplies, $58 million in tax savings. A one-year exemption on household items under $25 like laundry detergent, toilet paper, tax uh, paper towels, hand soap, and et cetera, $112 million. Just a number of these uh, things that I think are going to help everybody in Florida uh, get along, especially on the lower tier where they're struggling to uh, make ends meet. Uh, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis proposed also a question or posed a question on Monday following President Biden's admission that the Chinese coronavirus pandemic is now over, inquiring whether the president has allowed those who were forced to leave the military due to a vaccine mandate are going to be allowed to return. Biden declared the pandemic over. By the way, they've already walked that back. So who's in charge? So uh, when he let uh, those discharged from the military due to vax mandates return to protecting our country, when will he do that, the governor asked. The remark followed Biden's, again, weekend admission on 60 Minutes, uh, saying that the pandemic was over uh, just a few days before the midterm elections, 50 days before the midterm elections. Notably, millions of Americans have already accepted the end of the pandemic for well over the last year, long returning to a state of pre-pandemic normalcy despite the Biden administration's attempts to force masks and vaccines on the American people. In fact, the Supreme Court dealt a massive blow to the president's latter attempt earlier this year, knocking down Biden's Occupational Safety and Health Administration mandate, which would have affected tens of millions of American workers. Former State uh, Department uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo made a similar argument after Biden's admission, contending that Biden is still kicking tens of thousands of healthy soldiers out of the military with his COVID vaccine mandate. These soldiers should be reinstated immediately, Pompeo added. The Pentagon is supposed to expel tens of thousands of troops who have not complied with Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin's vaccine mandate issued in August of 2021. Republican lawmakers say 100,000 troops face discharge over the president's vaccine mandate. And now the Pentagon has tried and failed to make up the difference by reducing recruitment standards. Over 100,000 active service members whose taxpayers paid to train face discharge during the worst recruiting year in our military history, said Mike Johnson. Thousands of troops have already been given involuntary discharges due to the mandate. That's just sick. Unbelievable. And, and of course, the pandemic, so we're firing these soldiers while the pandemic is over, according to the president, which, of course, as I mentioned, has already been walked back by the White House. Former uh, Vice President for Echo Health Alliance, a major funder of the Wuhan Institute of Virology, claims that his organization developed SARS-CoV-2 through gain-of-function research that makes viruses more dangerous. The process of developing SARS-CoV-2 was already described in detail in a proposal submitted to and ultimately funded by the National Institutes of Health, the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, by Echo Alliance with the uh, WIV, University of North Carolina, listed as collaborators. According to sworn declaration of Andrew Huff, who is represented by the attorney Thomas Rents, the statement is included in a much larger packet dated September 12th, posted by Rents, who represents clients challenging COVID-19 mandates, apparently directed to Wisconsin GOP Senator Ron Johnson, who na- whose name is in the file name, The packet has irregular punctuation and capitalization throughout. Anthony Fauci funded the creation of SARS-CoV-2 
and lied to Congress about funding gain-of-function work, Rents uh, wrote in the summary, a claim also recently made by former CDC director Robert Redfield, Anthony Fauci, and other coordinated in the uh, cover-up in the funding of the gain-of-function work that resulted in COVID-19. Huff, a former U.S. Army infantryman in Iraq and former research fellow in the Department of Homeland Security, shared the full packet on Twitter, saying it was sent to the U.S. Congress last week. He has a book coming out later, The Truth About Wuhan. Pretty incredible information, and again, uh, just demonstrating that Fauci lied, tons of lies, and uh, hopefully we're going to get him on the stand when the House is uh, taken by the GOP and uh, take him through and grill him about what happened with what really happened with uh, COVID-19 and with the pandemic. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning Naples, longest established air conditioning company. I hope you'll visit the website johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date by reading Life in Naples. The website is lifeinnaples.net. Coming up, Bob Levy, chairman of the Cato Institute. That and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. I'm Bob Harden, the host of the Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabees.com and stop by Lulabee's Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m., seven days a week. Lulabee's Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabee's Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. Collier County Sheriff Kevin Rambaugh says the number one reason the elderly become victims is isolation. The Collier Senior Center goes a long way in keeping seniors connected with the community and with each other. The Collier Senior Center, located at 4898 Coronado Parkway in Golden Gate, provides comprehensive information regarding services and resources that affect the quality of life of older adults and their caregivers in Collier County, empowering them to maintain independent and meaningful lives. Here's Esther Lully, director of Collier Senior Center. Everyone, every senior is welcome. There's diversity there. It's vibrant. It's a caring atmosphere. So there's a reason we offer the services and programs that we do. We want to help enrich the lives of senior members and provide support to their caregivers. Want to find out more? Visit CollierSeniorCenter.org. That's CollierSeniorCenter.org. Or call the Collier Senior Center at 239-252-4541. That's 252-4541. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. 
Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you part by Gulf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best, building a performing arts center in downtown Naples. You can find out more and buy tickets. Visit the website, golfshoreplayhouse.org. Coming up, we're going to visit with Professor Andrew Joppa. Right now we have with us Bob Levy. He's an author. He's also a constitutional scholar and chairman of the Cato Institute. Bob, thank you so much for joining us. Always a pleasure, Bob. Good to be with you. Thank you, Bob. Tell us about the Cato Institute. We are a libertarian think tank headquartered in Washington, D.C., devoted to private property, free markets, securing individual rights, and limited government. C-A-T-O dot O-R-G on the web. Thank you, Bob. I thought we'd turn our attention to judicial activism. It's kind of a pejorative term when people say he's a judicial activist. That's kind of a slander against the judge. Both liberals and conservatives condemn so-called judicial activism. What does the term mean? Well, properly understood, it's a use of court power to either invalidate legislative or executive acts or to establish legal rules without legislative or executive initiation that is judging as legislation. So in today's, you know, politically charged environment, uh, the attitude towards judicial activism depends on uh, what part political party you happen to belong to. Yeah. When liberals uh, uh, are in the uh, ascendancy, uh, the conservatives object to activist judges who discover rights such as the national right to abortion, for example, that conservatives oppose. But if the conservatives... Uh, dominate the bench, then the liberals object to the activist judges who overturn rights that the liberals favor. So the the bottom line is judicial activism has become, as you say, a pejorative term. And it's really a camouflage for the uh, aversions uh, on policy of both liberals and conservatives. Yeah, so uh, should we conclude that judicial activism is actually a good thing? Well, if it means a willing engagement by the judge in applying the law and the Constitution to scrutinize uh, the acts or omissions of the executive and legislative branches, then they, yes, that's a good thing. But no, if it means rendering legal judgments based on the judge's public policy preferences, it's a bad thing. So activism you know, can be appropriate if it's finding rights that are expressed nowhere in the Constitution, hmm. because that's precisely what judges are instructed to do by the, by the Ninth Amendment. It states that we retain rights beyond those that are enumerated expressly in the Constitution. So that type of activism is essential if the courts are going to guard against overreaching government. But the courts are not author- authorized to do things like endorse entitlements, like federalized welfare, which are neither in the Constitution nor uh, traceable to our common law and our natural law uh, heritage. So the, the judge has a responsibility to invalidate all laws that don't conform to the Constitution. Judges would be, and courts would be derelict if they endorsed unconstitutional acts merely because they're passed by the uh, elective rep- representatives. So what about the opposite of activism, uh, judicial restraint? Well, Judicial restraint commands that the courts sort of indiscriminately defer to the decisions of Congress 
and the state legislatures. But this process removes the courts from the system of checks and balances that that was designed by the framers to prevent abuse of power. So government, as a result, because we've had judicial restraint, government has grown uh, in surprising ways. And in practice, judicial restraint has sort of morphed into judicial abdication Mm. with the judge simply stepping aside and letting the legislative and executive branches do whatever they will. And that meant more government power and fewer constitutionally protected individual rights. So if the courts aren't consistently active or restrained, what should their role be? Is there kind of a Goldilocks solution here? Well, ideally, uh, the the, the courts shouldn't be either active or passive. It should be vigorous in in, uh, securing our rights and limiting government power. That's the function of the courts. So when the legislative or the executive branch exceeds its enumerated uh, powers, like, for example, forgiving student loans or, or fails to enforce uh, constitutionally uh, guaranteed rights, then the, then the courts have the authority. And in fact, they have the duty to intervene and stop that. Uh, but on the other hand, a judicial intervention wouldn't be appropriate if a judge were to overturn a law simply because uh, he doesn't like it. Yeah. Uh, he disapproves of it. Uh, so rather than decide cases... Uh, according to their the judge's subjective value judgments, the judge should be following objective legal standards and constitutional provisions. So this sort of results-oriented jurisprudence that we've seen, particularly with liberal courts, has focused on, on reaching a particular outcome. And that may be okay for a legislature, uh, but it's not okay for a judge. The judge's role is to apply the law, not to impose his policy preferences. Oh, so well said. So on balance, when should a court intervene and when should it bow out? Well, the trick is to distinguish uh, that difference. When is it proper? When is it improper? And that's uh, tr- trouble because the, the laws are are often sort of unclear. And sometimes the legislature hasn't done its job in expressly indicating what the law is or has intentionally left gaps hoping for the court's uh, to fill in the gaps and re- relieve the legislature of responsibility. And, of course, the meaning of the law depends on the meaning of the Constitution, and that's also uh, a subject of some uh, disagreement. So members of the court, therefore, have to have a theory of the Constitution. They have to have a theory about separation of powers and federalism and limiting government and individual rights. Those are the cornerstones of our constitutional government, and they have to be consistent in their allegiance to that theory. So the lesson is that judicial engagement is essential in maintaining our liberties. The judge has to honor those founding principles that I mentioned, expansive personal freedom and tightly constrained uh, government powers. And that's what has given us freedom for 230 years and binds the uh, legislative and executive branches with the chains of the Constitution. So, Bob, uh, I feel compelled to ask a question about stereodicysis and what its role might be. Is it uh, judicial activism or restraint? What are your thoughts? Well, stereotypes is appropriate when the body politic has relied upon the dictates of the court 
and has conformed their actions in a way that would be grievous if it were to be over overturned and mm. reversed. And if this has been in place for a long period of time, and if the law is rather clear and the decision, the prior decision of the court is a respected one, and if, in fact, it's led to political stability and has sort of eliminated any contention across the country, then overturning a law would be disastrous. There are many laws where those provisions are not key, and they should be overturned if they were wrongly decided. Thank you, Bob. And uh, would term limits for judges solve the problem of a judicial overreach? Yeah, I think it would help either term limits or a mandatory retirement age. It would serve uh, three purposes. It would prevent the concentration of power. It would remove the justices who may not be performing effectively. And it would depoliticize the confirmation process by spreading <clears throat> judicial appointments among uh, presidents of different parties. Uh, for the Supreme Court, I'd favor like 18-year terms with staggered expirations. One justice would be replaced every two years. Hmm. So each president would have an opportunity to appoint uh, at least two justices during uh, that president's uh, uh, four-year four-year term. Uh, the downside is that the presidential candidates would sort of announce their nominees as a political campaign tactic, right. and uh, that might not be... Uh, um, uh, the best thing for the country to uh, politicize that process. And there would be higher turnover. Uh, higher turnover can be good, but it has its uh, downsides because it means uh, it, it might diminish the court stature and it might diminish uh, the stability of legal doctrine. But on balance, I think it's a good idea, one that we ought to adopt. Interesting. Bob Levy, again, chairman of the Cato Institute. I encourage you to visit the website cato.org, C-A-T-O Org. Bob, always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Great to be with you, Bob. Thank you so much. All right, coming up, Andrew Joppa, professor and author of Josephus of Oz, that and more, right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Do you have questions about your retirement? Ameriprise Private Wealth Advisor Jason Nardella with Nardella Financial Group, a private wealth advisory practice of Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, can help. With the exclusive Confident Retirement Approach, you'll work together to develop a retirement roadmap to get you where you want to go. Call Nardella Financial Group today at 239-325-1041. That's 239-325-1041. Office is located at 9015 Stratistel Court, Suite 103, Naples, Florida. The confident retirement approach is not a guarantee of future financial results. Investment advisory products and services are made available through Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, a registered investment advisor. Finish what you started with a Hodges University wheel. You can complete your bachelor's degree in as little as one year with your previously earned credits. What's the wheel? It's a customized bachelor's degree in organizational management. Learn about and apply the business, management, and leadership skills you need to advance your career. 
You can get unmatched educational experience with classes held once a week on campus in Fort Myers, in Port Charlotte, or Naples. You'll be immersed in classes taught by professors with real-world experience in the areas of business, management, and leadership. This degree can be applied to all areas of professional career. Learn more by calling 239-938-7700. That's 239-938-7700. Or visit hodges.edu. Stay near and go far with Hodges University. Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the Foundation for Government Accountability. Terrific organization. I hope you'll check out the website, thefga.org. We have with us Andrew Joppa, professor and author of Josephus of Oz. Andy, thank you so much for joining us. Andy, are you there? Yes, Bob, I just lost you for a second. I am here. Okay, well, that's good. <laughs> you know, we typically uh, start off our conversations with uh, some good news. Any good news on the docket? Well, there is There is some good news. Let me sort of uh, mention to your audience why good news is important, even during these troubling times. Back during the Black Plague period of England in the middle part of the 14th century, uh, Edward III maintained as much normalcy as he could. And at the, as the Black Plague passed... England was in relatively good shape. They lost about a third of their population to the Black Plague, but they came out of it in a, in, a, in a state of normalcy post that. So maintaining normalcy, I think, is a key factor. So the good news, in my estimation, is, is something that keeps us in that mind, that uh, we have to maintain normalcy as much as possible. Uh, with, with that in mind, let me just mention, as a baseball fan last night, one of the most fascinating half innings in the history of baseball, Aaron Judge, in the bottom of the ninth, hits his 60th home run, followed then by a ultimate grand slam by Giancarlo Stanton to win the game. Yanks get five in the bottom of the ninth to win it 9-8. Now, for non-baseball fans, that doesn't matter to me. And all baseball fans, that is a remarkable half innings. Why do I talk about it? Because that's my normalcy, Bob. That's what, uh, and I have to fight this constantly. Uh, politics certainly consumes 92.3% of my, my mental involvement. But I have to force myself to, uh, to enjoy other things, to get out of it and re- retain the normalcy that really uh, is the most important thing that defines America, Bob. Well, uh, and uh, congratulations to you. I know you're a lifelong Yankee fan. Also, I mean, Biden gave us some good news, too. He said the pandemic is over. Well, it is over. I mean, but it's, it's not over. It's, the pandemic is over, but the serious implications of COVID go on. I mean, it's just uh, an amazing juxtapositions of, of two contradictory viewpoints. But certainly that is not, that is not new for the Biden administration. Uh, my real good news in terms of this is a political event, certainly, but it's, it's, it's more than that. Um, Governor DeSantis of Florida, most of us are aware, has sent 50 illegal marauders uh, up to uh, Martha's Vineyard, uh, and the outrage from the uh, the elite in that area and from the the left in general has been just it, incredible. Uh, one of the sheriffs in uh, in Texas is now uh, searching out the legality of this to see if he can bring legal charges against against DeSantis. DeSantis, in anticipating. Uh, this kind of move uh, had all of the uh, the immigrants, illegal immigrants, 
sign a permission form that was written in both Spanish and in English uh, that they agreed to go up to Massachusetts. So uh, DeSantis understands the left. He understands their tactics. He understands they would move towards some variation of legal charge. And he cut that off by getting these, these permission forms signed. Now, what is, uh, of course, absent from this, but I think Ron DeSantis is trying to provoke it, is the basic discussion about our wide open border. Right. Uh, from Saturday to Sunday of this past week, uh, it's been documented there were 4,500 illegal immigrants during that two-day period that came into uh, that came into the through the southern border. It's estimated that El Paso is is receiving 1,500. 1,500 illegal immigrants a day. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if that number is accurate, but that is the number I've heard. If it is not accurate, certainly it is a large number that a fairly not a gigantic city like El Paso, Texas, is receiving. Uh, and then for them to somehow go, go out of their minds because they don't know what to do with 50 illegals up in Martha Vineyard, I think is certainly uh, something that exposes the, the mindset, the general mindset of the left. But I think DeSantis' ultimate goal is to provoke conversations about just how we can somehow control the, the border. If we go back to Jan Brewer in 2009, when, when she tried to enforce federal immigration laws and was prevented from doing that, preventing from enforcing the law uh, by President Obama at that point, I think we can see this ongoing pattern of, of, of allowing the, uh, these people to come in. Uh, we could debate exactly what the, the reasoning is behind this, this process. I think the most commonly accepted is these are, in, uh, in the short term, or obviously in the long term, these are our Democrat voters. Uh, I, I think it's far more than that. I think it's an ongoing attempt to diminish and weaken the basic American culture. I think that ultimately is what this is about, Bob. I would agree with that. And I will say, too, that you may be aware that a ambulance chaser now has gone up and started to represent these immigrants who landed in, in Martha's Vineyard. So <laughs> they're going to try and profit from the whole situation. Unbelievable. You know, they're, they're accusing uh, DeSantis of making these uh, immigrants into pawns, and so so hypocritical. I mean, who has, who has done more of that type of thing than the left in terms of, of using these, these people? And I'm going to describe them for the moment as unfortunate people, uh, although they make a choice, and those choices have, uh, have repercussions. Uh, but on the other hand, the, you know, these people are caught in this, in this horrible game where uh, they're being invited in, essentially, by, by Biden, and then become nothing more than the fodder for leftist politics once they're here. So um, you know, this is a, a horrible situation, mostly for America and Americans, of course. But I think in many ways for these people, if we look at the number of deaths of these people as they make their trek from uh, Central and uh, now South America, uh, up through the uh, up through Mexico. Uh, with that in mind, let me just mention something that Biden said yesterday that was uh, somewhat disarming when he was uh, challenged in terms of his uh, approach to s closing the border. He said his situation, Biden's situation per se, is different than anything that's preceded it. The reason, Bob, is because he's looking at Cuban immigrants, Venezuelan immigrants, Nicaraguan immigrants. He's looking at immigrants from uh, totalitarian, what we can call socialist communist states. 
So he is positioning his problem as being different than the historical problem, which is basically Central America and Mexico. Yeah, because we we can't send him back. He says <laughs> that's not an alternative. Unbelievable. But I, I'd like to make this point too. We see that DeSantis's star is on the rise. Many, of course, are starting position to see DeSantis as a serious candidate for president. And uh, as a consequence, we're beginning to see the, uh, the the blowback towards DeSantis by the left. And uh, just my contention is that it uh, doesn't matter who ends up running for president. The blowback is going to be the same. I think that uh, President Donald Trump has the backbone to stand up to it and uh, withstand what, whatever they have to present. Some people may not. Well, I mean, he's shown that. I think this, like, I, I love Ron DeSantis. He is a yep. remarkable governor, remarkable man. Um, without Trump in the, in the mix, certainly he would be my first choice for the uh, nomination in 2024. I think there's a significant difference, though, in the, uh, the life circumstance of Donald Trump as compared to Ron DeSantis at this moment, if I'm going to make that comparison. Ron DeSantis is a young man with a young family. Uh, for him to expose his family to what they're going to have to go through if he is the nominee or eventually the president of the United States, uh, that is a different call than Donald Trump had to make with adult children and an adult family in general. So, uh, and again, this does not in any way mean that uh, DeSantis is not a, right. uh, a great candidate for the office. Uh, I just think that there is a significant difference in the life circumstance uh, of, of DeSantis as compared to Trump. Yeah, that's a great point, Andy. Andy, we need to take a little break. Can you stick around? I need some coffee. So I'll yeah. be here. <laughs> All right, we're going to have more here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting uh, Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Broadcasting Network. Finish what you started with a Hodges University wheel. You can complete your bachelor's degree in as little as one year with your previously earned credits. What's the wheel? It's a customized bachelor's degree in organizational management. Learn about and apply the business, management, and leadership skills you need to advance your career. You can get unmatched educational experience with classes held once a week on campus in Fort Myers, in Port Charlotte, or Naples. You'll be immersed in classes taught by professors with real-world experience in the areas of business, management, and leadership. This degree can be applied to all areas of professional career. Learn more by calling 239-938-7700. That's 239-938-7700. Or visit Hodges.edu. Stay near and go far with Hodges University. Do you suffer from joint pain in your shoulders, hips, or knees? I was suffering from debilitating pain in my knees. On a referral, I saw Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine. He successfully treated my symptoms and pain for several months. Finally, having exhausted all alternatives for pain management, Dr. Markovich and I agreed that surgery was my best alternative. Dr. Markovich replaced both of my knees in 2006, and I now have full range of motion in both knees, and I have no pain. I now play golf and exercise free of debilitating pain in my knees. Don't suffer needlessly with joint pain. Call orthopedic surgeon Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine at 482-5399. That's 482-5399. He did a great job for me and he'll help you too.
Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. We're providing you news and commentary rooted in a commitment to individual liberty, personal responsibility, limited government, and the rule of law. We continue the conversation with Andrew Joppa, professor and author of Josephus of Oz. Again, Andy, thank you so much for joining us. Good morning again, Bob. Good morning, Andy. I just wonder if you have any comments about what's going on in Ukraine. Well, primarily, the I think it's a uh, an extremely important story. I don't know if it's being given the press that it should or the explanation that it should. Uh, Putin has recently suggested that he would not hesitate to use nuclear weapons uh, in the uh, in the event uh, of certain things happening. Uh, I think the the main thing is if the uh, territorial integrity of of Russia is is threatened, is in fact. Uh, avoided or, or violated, um, he has said he would not hesitate to use use nuclear weapons. I'm presuming he's talking about tactical field nuclear weapons as compared to a larger nuclear strike. Uh, but even the word nuclear being suggested uh, in terms of the confrontation of superpowers, to me, is extremely ominous. Uh, he has suggested that the that NATO and the West in general have, have provoked him by making comparable threats of the use of nuclear weapons. I, I don't know what that refers to. Uh, it may be uh, his, he's referring to the uh, what he has uh, determined to be through intelligence, Russian intelligence, uh, a Western attempt to use artillery to attack the uh, Russian-controlled nuclear power plant in the southeastern part of Ukraine. Now, that he may see that in the same context as, as being a nuclear attack of some sort. Uh, but in any case, I think this is something that uh, many have long feared, that this event, a horrible event in Ukraine, would would uh, devolve into something that might result in nuclear weapons being used. Uh, and there's a general belief that once they're used, the general use of nuclear weapons would uh, would expand. So uh, I think this is obviously a very serious issue. I, I, I certainly don't have any answers. Um, I do think we have to uh, use some, some uh, calmer voices in terms of how we're dealing with this situation to avoid these kind of potentials, Bob. You know, Andy, too, I, I don't want to downplay the importance and the threat of what uh, what you just talked about. But the other side of it, too, is uh, I'm wondering about his popularity in Russia. And I wonder if it's not some saber rattling going on to save face with the Russian uh, populace. I mean, that's that's always possible. And of course, the, his loss of popularity may also be Western propaganda. It may not be a real thing in itself. Right. Uh, but we, we have to wait and see. I mean, almost every uh, every uh, totalitarian in the type of, of Putin is going to have serious challenges. Um, uh, perhaps not as open as they've been in Russia, but certainly those things happen. Uh, in terms of the, the real possibility there, it's, it's hard to judge. But you, you may very well be right, and the, the media may very well be right, that uh, Putin is weakening, and in fact, to, to strengthen or buffer his position, he may resort. And I mentioned this last week, uh, that I felt that he would resort to other weaponry uh, to, in fact, ensure that he would not lose uh, you lose in Ukraine. It's being estimated that the death toll is, is 10 to 1, Russian to Ukraine forces, uh, in this battle. Uh, if those numbers are true, and they're saying that there's up to 100,000 Russian troops that have been killed, uh, I know what happened in Russia or in the Soviet Union at that point with the amount of death that was taking place in Afghanistan. Uh, it nearly destroyed the Soviet Union, the, uh, the public response. So all of these things may be churning. Uh, but again, I don't know whether Putin being weakened is good news or bad news, Bob. Uh, if he gets weakened, he may become more desperate and more willing to use uh, aggressive 
offensive weaponry such as tactical field nuclear weapons. You know, it's it's hard to know what you can believe. I, I'd heard that uh, uh, the forces, the Russian forces have been depleted so much that he's trying to bring aboard another 300,000 soldiers that have had some uh, experience, military experience, that, uh, in other words, conscript or, or more uh, draft, much like we had back in the Vietnam War. Uh, it's so interesting to see right now, but I think these are solid. This is solid evidence that uh, he's not winning; he's losing. I mean, in, in terms of Ukraine, yes. I mean, every indication is that the Ukraine forces are making serious advances. Um, and again, I, I I don't know whether that's good news or bad news. I do not believe, and I have never believed, that uh, Putin will allow Russia to lose the war in Ukraine. Yeah. And then the question becomes: one, if that statement is true. What methods may he invoke to prevent that from happening? And yeah. I think that's that's a question that must be considered and understood to be a legitimate question, Bob. You know, Andy, you just uh, released a new piece, uh, which is uh, a fact I'm going to post it. You can find it on, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, later today. But I just read it this morning. Are we like the Nazis? Not yet. Uh, maybe you could tell us about it. Well, I, I try to explain to my readers why talking about the Nazis is important. Uh, right now, whenever someone invokes the Nazis by comparison or for comparison, uh, it's, it's just typically rejected out of hand because it's, it's done so often and so inappropriately in so many cases. What I, I start out with by making the case that uh, Nazi Germany is only a 20th century manifestation of a recurring human behavioral problem. Uh, that what, it, what happened in Nazi Germany is important because it demonstrates that the historical tendencies of, uh, of, of behavioral patterns in leadership and the fulfillment of those leaderships in totalitarian states. Uh, so I, I start out with that saying that we, we study and understand Nazi Germany not for what it offers in itself, but for what it tells us about other patterns of human behavior. Right. And within that, Bob, I, I point out, even at the same time that the Nazi, Nazi Germany was evolving across Europe, uh, other comparable states were evolving, and, and political movements uh, were, were evolving at the same time. Uh, the Ustasi in, in Croatia, the Arrow Cross in Hungary, uh, the Guard of Great Albania in Albania, uh, the, the Iron Guard in Romania. All of these were every bit as uh, demonic as was Nazi Germany. The only difference was that Nazi Germany had the resources to fulfill their, their hatred. Uh, Croatia's fulfillment was, was horrid. If you ever read of the, uh, the, 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 the imprisonments that, uh, that uh, Croatia used, with hundreds of thousands of being killed, uh, the same type of people, the same mindset, the same viciousness towards their enemy. So uh, the point I'm making with that, Bob, is that uh, Nazi Germany was only unique in one way. It could fulfill what it was. The other areas didn't have the strength militarily, politically, or economically to get it done, but they were of the same type. Now, I move that into a discussion of the United States. Can we see those same similarities right now uh, within the, the Biden administration and the, the general bureaucracy? If we look at January 6th, I think it's undoubtedly the Reichstag fire. It is a, uh, a, a, an event created, a red flag event uh, created to bring focus on their enemies. If we look at the harnessing of the FBI, the American Gestapo, we can see the police state is a normal part of the of the operation of all totalitarian states uh, throughout history the focus on their enemies and the elimination
elimination of their enemies. Again, a constant figure of all totalitarian states. So again, I list a, uh, a, a, a long list of comparable attributes, not just comparing us to Nazi Germany, in fact, but comparing us to all of the emerging totalitarian states throughout history. I say there's only one major difference, and that's why I say not quite yet. All of the totalitarian states that emerged did one thing. They confiscated or eliminated all weaponry in the hands of private citizens. That is the one thing that, that enables me to say not quite yet. But it also provokes me to say, if that happens, I can see no difference in the structure of our executive our, uh, our, uh, our supportive agencies in the federal government uh, and, and the FBI, uh, once private weapons are confiscated, you can look back at history. Uh, Turkey disarmed their citizens, then they killed uh, one and a half million Armenians. Russia disarmed their citizens, they then killed 20 million Russian Soviets. Uh, China disarmed their citizens under Mao, 20 million Chinese then died. Germany disarmed the citizens, resulting ultimately in the deaths of billions, with six million Jews specifically being murdered. The list is long, Bob, yeah. where we can indicate that the, the final step in the seizure of total totalitarian power is the confiscation of weaponry. And we can see right now that is a major concept that the left would love to fulfill if we become uh, uh, weak in our resolve to protect the Second Amendment. So um, that's the totality of, of my article. It deals with the Biden administration, uh, the, the federal bureaucracy, the FBI particularly, uh, the, the issue of gun control, all of these are representative in their forms to the historical nature of totalitarian states, Bob. Uh, thank you, Andy. Some great points. Listen, we need to take another break. Can you stick around? I'm still here. All right. We're going to have more here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Do you have questions about your retirement? Ameriprise Private Wealth Advisor Jason Nardella with Nardella Financial Group, a private wealth advisory practice of Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, can help. With the exclusive Confident Retirement Approach, you'll work together to develop a retirement roadmap to get you where you want to go. Call Nardella Financial Group today at 239-325-1041. That's 239-325-1041. Offices located at 9015 Stratistel Court, Suite 103, Naples, Florida. The Confident Retirement Approach is not a guarantee of future financial results. Investment advisory products and services are made available through Ameriprise Financial Services, LLC, a registered investment advisor. Blue Provence Restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Linda and myself. Blue Provence, located in a historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. Experience award-winning cuisine at Blue Provence and enjoy one of Florida's most extensive, eclectic, and fun wine cellars. Dining your choice of the popular Eden Bar, the intimate courtyard garden, or the beautiful Provencal Caribbean dining room. Enjoy a wonderful and memorable evening in a casual and relaxed atmosphere then 
includes a taste of Provencal hospitality. Blue Provence is open seven days a week, all year round. Visit BlueProvenceNaples.com for reservations, everyday specials, and coming events. That's BlueProvenceNaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. Blue Provence, French restaurant in the heart of Old Naples. Welcome back to the Bob Harton Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harton. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Choice Social. Choice Social is a new, refreshing social networking platform, and you can find out more and download the app by visiting the website choicesocial.us. We continue the conversation with Andrew Joppa, professor and author of Josephus of Oz. Again, Andy, thank you so much for joining us. Good to be with you, Bob. Thank you, Andy. I don't know if you saw the piece on Don Lemon. He kind of got slam dunked. <laughs> His guest talking about slavery and reparations. I wonder if you had any comments about that. Well, he's knocked out of his primetime slot, which uh, is well-deserved. I think President Trump indicated that he, Trump, was a a Raider getter, and and, uh, Lamone, as he's been called, is a Raiders loser, and that's documented in terms of his numbers. But uh, the reason we'll talk about uh, Don Lemon today is he was interviewing a royal expert after the death of, of Queen Elizabeth II. And, uh, of course, he uh, brought in the issue of colonialism and uh, reparations that were necessary. Uh, the royal expert, uh, and I think this is important, uh, what, she, what she offered. She offered some comments about slavery that we don't hear, and I think that we have to have an expanded discussion of slavery to try to get rid of this contaminant uh, in American society. What this royal expert said to, to Lemon about his comments, he said, in the first place, England... Uh, the British uh, were the first and only country to launch a major attempt uh, to end slavery in Africa. In so doing, they lost 2,000 uh, naval men in the battles that followed in their uh, attempt to, to end slavery. So she suggested maybe the families, descendant families of these 2,000 men, should also get reparations. She said, and who should pay the reparations? Uh, she indicated that the slave traders would come to, to Africa and the slaves would be in cages on the beaches waiting for them, having been harvested by the African kings to be sold to the slavers. Yeah. Uh, so again, she was saying, you know, perhaps these African chieftains should be part of this reparations <laughs> process. So I think those kind of comments, no one is trying to diminish slavery, uh, obviously not. Uh, but I think what we have to do is, is expand it to understand that even slaves were not against the institution of slavery. Right. Slaves, no one wanted to be a slave, obviously. Uh, but again, when you talk about the institution, none of the slaves would have come out against the institution itself, particularly African slaves who lived in a culture where slavery was a complete norm. Uh, so I would, I'm, I'm sort of going to create this hypothetical. I would imagine that every slave in, in America uh, did not really have a negative uh, overall viewpoint about the institution. 
So I think we have to expand slavery, as all of us know, to being a worldwide manifestation of a human evil that affected and corrupted almost every definable society. Uh, it was not particularly egregious in, in, in America, far more egregious in Central and South America than it, it was in America. Uh, and America took steps within a, a progression of events, including the loss of 700,000 uh, men, 700,000 people during the Civil War as a, a commitment to ending this. So for us to be sitting within this, this guilt manifestation for a worldwide phenomenon that was supported and encouraged by African chieftains themselves, this discussion, uh, it, I know it's not going to happen, but it's a discussion that should take place. Absolutely. This is a great historical review. also want to just acknowledge uh, William Wilberforce, a member of a young member, actually, of Parliament, who, as a single, he was a, such a force in terms of overturning, uh, overturning slavery. I think it was in 1801. Uh, yes. Amazing story, indeed. So um, we have just a few minutes uh, left. Could you, should we talk a little bit about parental control of the curriculum? Well, um, I have a view that's probably different than most um, and the general push is, from the right especially, from the Republican side, is that parents have some control over curriculum. Um, I, I, I find this a dubious uh, proposition. In the first place, there's no such thing, Bob, as parents. Uh, parents come in all shapes, sizes, and, and political persuasion. So I don't know if there's some unified thing uh, that's described that can be described as, as parents. Uh, so I don't know what that even means when they say parents should have control of the curriculum. Uh, I'm not sure where the control should be, but I, I do know that it has to be a well-considered, uh, agreed-on process uh, that is arrived at in some uh, in some measure of, of democratic involvement. I don't even know how to describe exactly what that means. I would say, Bob, if we can't control the curriculum in our in our public schools, then I don't know if the public schools have earned their right to sustain their existence. In other words, if we look at what's going on, we've all seen the uh, the horrors of some of the uh, the uh, the teachers in the younger grades, the the way they dress, the way they act, their uh, their sexual indoctrination. We've seen this. We've seen the curriculum being focused uh, anti-American time and time and time again. Uh, so again, I that has to change. I don't think parents are the the vehicle for that. I don't know what the vehicle should be, but I would suggest if it can't change, the public schools have lost their basic right to exist. That right is, uh, is uh, ensured by the creation of good citizens. I don't know if that can be described as what the public schools are doing right now. Bob. No, I would agree. And I think the, the solution to this is school choice and uh, scholarships allowing the money to follow the child no matter where. Make things competitive so that uh, public schools have to compete for the students uh, uh, in the eyes of the parents, by the way, in, in my view. So, uh, but right now we have this, uh, I'm going to call it a cabal, or, a, or, or they're in total control right now, and they shouldn't be, and nor the teachers' unions and in, in their involvement with the education as well. I mean, I, I certainly agree with that. I was the lead applicant on <clears throat> two charter school applications in New York that were politically defeated. I, uh, I knew someone on the New York Board of Regents that informed me of that politicization of, of my application. We had funding. We had location. We had uh, a great – I had a great board under me. Uh, but, again, it was defeated by, by the, the political left in, in New York State. Uh, but that is that certainly is an answer of I'm not sure if it's a total answer, Bob, but uh, I think it's something that that must happen in to a larger extent uh, 
And if it doesn't, I don't, I don't know. The public schools cannot be allowed to indoctrinate our children, corrupt our children any further. It is a case of, it's a classic case, in my estimation, of child abuse. Yeah. Well, uh, and we'll end the conversation with this, that, the Calif- or that uh, Florida is ranked number one in the nation in terms of public education. So we're making great progress. Andy, always appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Okay, Bob. Take care. You too as well. Well, that's a wrap here in today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly did. Uh, we have great guests for tomorrow. Tomorrow, including uh, Michael Cannon, Director of Health Policy Studies at the Cato Institute, Bill Barnett, former mayor of Naples, Seton Motley, the founder and president of Less Government, and the co-founder of the Florida Citizens Alliance, Keith Law. Always appreciate your comments on the show. You can send me an email at bobharden at hotmail.com. And if you enjoy the show, please tell your friends. It's a great way to support our advertisers who make the show possible. I hope you make it a great day on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste. so much for listening to the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. For more information and audio files of previous shows, visit www.bobharden.com.